0: Galatians chapter 6 says, and again, this is actually the uh, summary of the letter. So as he writes, this is not just uh, a last part, it's actually the summary of the entire book of Galatians. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, again, we thank you for the wonderful wonderful truths that we've been able to sing. That you have enlightened our minds. You have changed our hearts. That really, the only thing we really want to do is praise your name and walk with you. And yet, Lord, we still have the flesh. And the times we veer off the path, and we thank you, Lord, that you bring us back. That you are pursuing us when we sometimes walk away, would not pursue you again. Father, again, we thank you for your patience, for your comfort, for your encouragement. Thank you that you make all things new, that you not only create us a new creation, but each part of our life is being changed. Lord, I pray now as we look at motivations for ministry and motivations that are in in our own heart, We need to be challenged with this, Lord. At times we have these wrong motivations. At times we're truly not boasting in the cross and depending on the cross and glorying in the cross. And it creates all kinds of problems in our life when we don't do that. So, Lord, bring us back to the cross. Help us to see how essential not only knowing and receiving the gospel is, but also living by it, living by faith. Father, I pray that you would convict us in the areas that we need conviction. Lord, that you would change us and grow us for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn again in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. This is part one of two parts, and then next week we're done with Galatians. And I know some of you have said, when are we going to get done with the Galatians next week? You know, this last week I had an opportunity with Saul and the kids to go to Letchworth uh, State Park. We hadn't been there for quite a while. Well, My wife and some of the kids wanted to take a walk down the gorge along the side. And I said, well, listen, if you just start here, I'll meet you at Glen Iris. And because I had some time to burn, um, I just kind of followed some of the the, uh, the roads, the tributary roads off of the main road around the gorge. And I came across a cemetery. You ever been to the cemetery at Letchworth? I didn't even know there it was there. But the interesting thing was, there was, you know, they always state not only how many years the person lived, but the months and the days, you know. And the other thing that was interesting is periodically a couple of those grave sites, they actually named, named what they were, what they did in life. And the one was a, a Calvary man. He was part of the, the infantry or the, uh, the cavalry of, uh, of that day. And, you know, it just gets you thinking, boy, how many things have changed in the last hundred plus years? There was one gravestone there, I think it was 1817. And then, you know, and then I think the, the, the most recent was like 1913 or something like that. So it was an old graveyard. But think about all the things that have changed since then. Think about all the things that have changed up to this present time. I mean, there used to be a cavalry with swords, hand-to-hand combat. Now what do we have? You know, we have smart bombs, guided missiles, night goggles. In fact, computerized tanks. In fact, cameras in the the nose tips of the bombs. That's why you can see where they're going. It's right in the the bomb itself. Um, You know, you think about computers, how that has changed. I remember the first computer I got, the guy told me, he said, this is 134 megabyte of information. It will be more than enough for anything you'll ever need. (laughs) And it lasted for like four months. And I had to upgrade and upgrade. And we went through these upgrades. And now I hold in my hand an 8 gigabyte. It's gone from kilobyte to a terabyte. Is that correct? Is that the the biggest amount of information that personal? 8 gigabyte. What is that, A 1,000 times bigger than that computer I had? Is that what it is? A thousand? I don't know. Anyways, a lot. You know, generations. You know, you have the, I think, the builder generation. I'm not even sure which that one is. You have the baby boomers, obviously. Many of us are in the baby boom generation. But then some of you are generation X or millennium generation, which is Y. So you have generation X. You have the millennium, which is Y. Then you also have the inter- internet generation, which I think they call Z, X, Y, and Z. Which I'm wondering now, like what's next, or are we the end? Things become outdated. If you had if you had my hard drive from that first computer, the only thing it would be actually good for is put in a museum. Things change, things get outdated. A lot of things get outdated. And the question is for today is does the gospel get outdated? Does the Bible get outdated? Does Christianity get outdated? And the answer is a resounding no. Right? By the way, I say that because some people are questioning that. Even within supposed evangelical camps. Like maybe we shouldn't be talking about sin. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about the Savior. Just get them to know that we love them. And that's always been a a heresy. It started many, 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 many years ago. But how does man approach God? Has that changed? You know, if you really think about it, there's only two approaches that man takes to approach God. One is divine accomplishment. The other one is human achievement. Two different ways that man seeks to approach God. By the way, only one of those is true. But there's two ways that man thinks that he can approach God. Again, two forms of religion. Divine accomplishment, human achievement. The one is grace, faith, Holy Spirit. It's internal. That's true Christianity. That it's grace. It's through faith. It's because the Spirit of God is work. It's it's based on the sacrifice of Christ, the redemption of Christ on the cross. And what he's, he's paid for us. It's depending on that redemptive work of Jesus Christ to save us. True Christianity would say this, that it's through faith, that's the conduit, and because of faith in Jesus Christ, that's enough. Christ alone. Because of grace alone. By faith alone. Again, key word, alone. That is called divine accomplishment. And that is what Paul has been battling throughout the entire book of Galatians. That you are justified, not by your works, but by faith. And then there's the other side. In it's different forms. But the bottom line is this, that man seeks to attempt to gain salvation through works. However you want to put it. And you put all the other world religions in a, in a pot and they're all the same. You have divine accomplishment or human achievement and human achievement are all the other world religions. Now you got you got to think about that. Because what the person is saying, depending on what camp they're in, whether it's human achievement or divine accomplishment, Depends on, again, how they approach God. See, the guy, the person that that believes in human achievement would say this, on my own merit and in my own power, I can make myself acceptable to God and worthy of a place in heaven. That's what they're saying. But again, the person that says, no, I can't do it. I, I can't do it on my own. In fact, I can't do any part of it. The person who's a true believer would say this, I cannot accomplish anything in my own power for goodness. And I throw myself on the mercy of God, trusting in the sufficient sacrifice of God's Son on the cross on my behalf. If you find yourself today saying, I'm trying, then that's human achievement. But if you say, you know what, Lord? I can't do it. I see my own sinful, wicked heart. I can't change. I need you. I need what you did on the cross, and I receive you. That's divine accomplishment. That's something that God did for us on our behalf, on the cross. Again, that is the book of Galatians. You had the Judaizers who were saying, no, you need to, you need to add to Christ's sacrifice. You need to obey the law. You need to get circumcised. You need to obey the, the Mosaic law. And Paul is fighting against that and saying, no, it's divine accomplishment. It's justification by faith. Even Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Divine accomplishment, human achievement. And I believe this, that we have to be on guard, that we not, do not turn the gospel into cross plus anything. Now again, as a true believer, I believe you'll never go into the total camp, but it's easy to somehow start thinking that, you know what? Yes, I have received Christ, but I have to keep on this performance treadmill. I have to get off that performance treadmill every once in a while. I usually know it's coming because I get very irritated with people. I saw it actually approaching me this last week, and I had to get off the performance treadmill. No, I stand before Christ. You stand before Christ, not only justified, but in a pleasing state because Christ has taken my sin and given his righteousness to me, and that's how it is for you too, right? Right? And so We need to get off the performance treadmill. Like somehow I'm pleasing God because of what I'm doing. Well, yeah, I, there is a sense that, yes, I do please God when I'm obedient to him. But it's all because I'm found in Christ. Okay, it's all because of him. As we approach this this last part of the letter, again, this is a change. There's actually a change here. And I want you to see this not as a postscript, you know, like P.S., like I forgot this, I just want to you know, remind you of a couple of things. When he says, verse 11, see with what large letters I've written with you with my own hand, don't see that like a P.S. Like, oh yeah, I wrote all this stuff, but you know, now I need to just kind of, oh, that's right, I need to, need to tell you a couple more things. But see it as a summary. What he does in these last few verses is he's summarizing everything that he has done up to this point. But he's actually peering, this is what he's doing, peering behind the veil of the Judaizers, at least in the first part, and actually showing you the motivations that's motivating them to push so hard towards the law, towards circumcision. So he's giving a, he, we're like peering into their heart, at least in a couple verses from here. But he says at first, he says this, See what large letters I have written with my own hand. And I'm not going to be um, dogmatic. There's a, you know, like, what is he referring to? What is he talking about? Large letters, my own hand. Well, there's a couple possibilities. One is, some have felt like Paul had poor eyesight. Like if you go to chapter 4, verse 13, he talks about a physical infirmity. Paul had a physical infirmity. And then two verses later in chapter 4, verse 15, he says this, If possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So people have conjecture. Well, maybe it was an eye disease. Maybe that was the thorn in the flesh of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And because he had an eye disease, he needed to write large letters in order to see them. Maybe he's just referring to the fact that, you know what? Even though I have physical infirmities, I am still seeking to communicate with you. By the way, that's a good question for us. Are we continuing to serve through the various trials and difficulties of our own life? Or to put it a different way, what is your trial or difficulty you are experiencing right now? What is your trial? We all experience trials. We all experience difficulties, hardships, right? And the question is this, has that been an excuse for you not to serve? See, Paul had infirmities, even if it wasn't an eye disease, we know from Corinthians 11... 2 Corinthians 11. I mean, he had all kinds of issues. I mean, he was beaten up, thrown for dad, shipwrecked, all those. I mean, he had infirmities. Again, he says it. In, but you know what? It never stopped the Apostle Paul from serving. And I'm afraid that sometimes we are a people of excuses. Not all of you. Not even many of you. I'm not even going to say that. But sometimes I find it in my own life, and sometimes I've seen it in other people's lives, even in your own life. A person will say, I can't serve because. Now again, if it's because of sin, you're right. Get your life right with God. But I can't serve because my kids are too young. I can't serve because my parents are too old. I can't serve because I'm getting old. (laughs) I can't serve because of my wife. I can't serve because... There's always going to be an excuse. I I like the Apostle Paul. Through infirmities, he kept forward. He was, as we call last week, a do-gooder. Right? How are you doing on do-gooding this last week? How are you doing on being a plotter? I love plotters. Now, sometimes plotters have to be set, you know, sometimes they have to downshift. It's not, you know, busy is not best all the time. Busy. Some, uh, Mary, what were you saying? Busy is what? Be under Satan joke. Yeah, be under Satan's joke. Sometimes we get too busy. Too busy. But you know what? That's not to negate the fact that we're supposed to be busy. We're supposed to be toiling for him. The night's coming when you cannot work. But anyways, Paul says, well, are large letters with my own hands. That might be what he's getting at. The other possibility is this. In the Greek, just like in the English, they had cursive. And scribes used to write with cursive. It was more eloquent looking. It was nicer looking. And then you had just block letter, like you would learn in kindergarten. And in Greek, you had cursive and you had block. And I think what had happened at this point in the letter is this. He literally grabs... Because we know this, that Paul used scribes to to dictate his letters. I mean, if you, just for one example, in or Colossians chapter 4, it says this, verse 418, four, 418 Colossians. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. And what would happen in Colossians is he transcribed... I mean, the, the scribe was writing it all down. At the very end, Paul would grab the pen... Write that last little bit. It made it so that, oh yeah, this is authentic, this is genuine, and this held weight. You know what I mean? You get the point. It's like you and you at the end, you know, someone would come in and say, John, sign this. Well, that makes it authentic. That's what would happen with the Apostle Paul. I think that's what he's doing right here. He grabs the pen, and yet, instead of doing the cursive, probably what he did is he did it in bold, block letters. Not because of his eye disease. He's saying, listen... I want you to get this final thing. This isn't a PS. This is a summary. You get this. This is, this is critical mass here. Sometimes when you get to the end of the letter, okay, I got the guts of it, the body of it. Paul says, don't, don't do that with this letter. In fact, it was when, a, when, a, when an emperor wanted to make an announcement, he would post on the board, but it would, it would be in capital these type of letters. They're called unisil. Unisil? I think it. Anyway, bold. Bold block letters. To announce what the emperor wanted. And so I think Paul grabs a pen and says, Listen, I want you to get this. And so he says, Look at what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Actually, some have said it might have been the entire letter. I prefer the thought of just the very end. So again, not a postscript, but a summary. And this is what the summary is going to hold for the next two weeks. He's going to give a warning against the uh, Judaizers. Not just a warning... Remember, whether the Judaizers, obey the law plus Christ. Not just that, though. He's going to show them, he's going to say, listen, let me show you the heart of the Judaizers. Let me actually show you what the motivation is. So again, you got a warning in verses 12 and 13. You have a restatement in verse 14 of what the gospel is. And then he says, talks about his own suffering. What can we learn from just this idea, this whole summary? Is this, when, when it came to the Apostle Paul, he wanted to make sure that the gospel was crystal clear and proclaimed unashamedly in a bold way. Okay. Even to the very end, the Apostle Paul says, this is what the gospel is. And he was right there. And he did it in a very bold way. In fact, so bold, he said, let me just paint it out as big as I can for you. Don't you ever forget this. And you say, well, what is the gospel? Say it again, John, that we are justified because of the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. Okay? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You can say that's the gospel. You can say it is this. That's what he means by the cross. You're going to see the word cross in verse 14. What are you talking about the cross? The cross. That's what he's getting at. He's not talking about the wooden thing. He's talking about the cross. What does the cross represent? That the God-man came to this earth to die for sinners. And it's only through his sacrifice alone that we can be saved. That's what he means by the cross. So let's get into these motivations. The first one is pride. In other words, why were the Judaizers urging the Galatians to get circumcised? What was the motivation in their heart? It was pride. Pride. Verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. A good showing in the flesh. The NIV says a good impression outwardly. These would compel you to be circumcised. That word good showing is is a a split. The uh, prefix is you good, good. But the the second part showing is the word prospeo. prosopio, prosopio. Where do we get the word? We get the word what? Prosperous. Show people that you're prosperous. Show people that you're successful. Why were they uh, encouraging the Galatians to get circumcised? Because they wanted to show they're the result. They were people pleasers. They were success-oriented type people. He says, that's why, you're, that's why you're being pushed, because they want to show that they're successful. They wanted to impress people. You know, a lot of religion, a lot of religious work, especially on the unsafe side, but I believe sometimes even in the Christian side, the true Christian, the true church, is driven by people-pleasing. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Don't do it just be, to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Have you taught class? Have you led? Have you sought to serve? Give the good word, give the help, but to be seen by men, you have no reward. Enjoy it, because that's all you get. He goes on in Matthew 6, Therefore, when you do your charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. That's, again, he goes back, he says, that's why they do it. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 5 says, they did it to be seen by men. Verse 16, unfasting, that they might be seen by man. Apparently, this man pleasing is huge because the Lord's talking to His disciples. He's not just saying the Pharisees are doing then that's that's where it stays. He's saying it is in the heart of man to want to please man to show the externals, the 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 outward, not the internal. If you go to Galatians chapter one verse ten, you remember that Paul went right past that in talking about himself. Verse ten, he says this: For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. I wouldn't be the slave of Christ. Are you a man pleaser? Or let me say it this way. Whenever we fall into pleasing people, the externals become more important than the internals. If you find a legalistic church, know that it's a man pleasing church. Because when you when you go down the path of man pleasing, the externals become more important. In our own life, though, sometimes that's the way it is. Again, in the flesh, showing good, showing in the flesh. In the, the flesh, there is not. And I'm not talking about the flesh, flesh. He's talking about the outward. As far as men, you you want to be seen as good in front of men. It's it's putting on the Sunday face. I don't know where you were last yesterday or two days ago and i don't know what happened with last night but you know sometimes we come in and as we go through the door going good great great going really good yeah well by the way there's a time to tell the deep issues of your heart and if you're really struggling there's a time for that you might say you know what things aren't going real good but i would like to talk but the idea is this we can easily fall into the sunday face we can easily show outwardly, like, well, everybody, everybody thinks I'm okay, so that everything's okay. God sees. You see what I'm saying? Let's not get external. Man only looks on the outward. In the flesh. Again, the Judaizers focused on the externals. And the main one was the circumcision. Now, immediately, I want to say this. Again, God gave circumcision to Adam, or excuse me, to Abraham as a sign of his covenant with him. So let's not just ditch circumcision. For the Jew, it was critical. In fact, to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised. So again, that wasn't wrong. But what the Judaizers had done is elevated it to make it a requirement of salvation. Like Acts 15, unless you are circumcised, talking about those Judaizers, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, they took a sign and made it a requirement. And sometimes, in legalism, that's what we do. We'll take something that God wants for us, but make it an absolute requirement. If you don't do this, you're not even saved. Well, let's remember, everyone's on a different growth. And we have to be careful how we judge our neighbor and judge our brother. There is sin, by the way. And there are certain sins that are wrong, period. They're sinful. They're in the Scripture. But I'm talking about the gray areas. Again, with the circumcision, it wasn't gray area for a Jew, but wait, we're talking a new covenant. We're talking about believers. We're talking about Christ alone, and they were trying to add to Christ alone. You know, if you think about it, with circumcision, you know, there is something today that we also have. It's an ordinance of our church. I believe it's absolutely critical, and that's baptism. But you know, there are people that are running around, hopefully none of you, that say, you know, if you're really going to be saved, you've got to be Baptized called baptismal regeneration. Again, look at verse 15. What is really important? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. What's important is the new creation. How do I become a new creation? Circumcised? No. Baptized? No. What? Receiving Jesus Christ. Receiving Christ. That's how I become a new creation. That's the inward Transaction. Now, again, <clears throat> it's not that baptism is not important. Baptism shows, I mean, it's a it's I mean, if, if a person was baptized today, and again, by the way, submerged, because what it's picturing is is that when we received Jesus Christ, we were completely placed into his body, the body of Christ. Baptized into his body actually by himself. Again, circumcision and baptisms are things of the flesh. They're outward, visible ceremonies performed by men. The new creation is a birth of the Spirit, inward, invisible miracle performed by God. Not to say that baptism is unimportant, but it doesn't give you anything towards salvation. Be on guard to not let the religion of the heart be debased into a superficial, outward show. And I left a quote. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth, by John Stott. Because it really, it is true. This is a very true statement as far as how we tend towards legalism, back towards the outward. He says this. It is natural to fallen man to decline from the real, the inward, and the spiritual, and to fabricate... Fabricate a substitute religion which is easy and comfortable because it demands our external and ceremonial only. But outward things matter little in comparison with the new creation or the new birth. This is not to say the bodily and external have no place to what or for what is in the heart needs to be expressed through the lips, and what is inward and spiritual in religion needs to have some outward expression. The essence is the inward. Outward, and I I didn't add this, but outward forms are valueless if inward reality is lacking. All right, so what's the whole point? There's a tendency to go from the inward to the external. And I was thinking like, okay, why is it that sometimes you get saved and you're so excited in my relationship with Jesus Christ? And then over time, you can become cynical and dry and cold and just stale. And I think it's it's because we move from relationship inward spirit driven spirit transformation to let me just make sure I get everything externally correct so that I look like I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing okay do you know I saying now remember Matthew I want you to, don't go out of here saying what I didn't say matthew twenty eight says this go therefore this is Jesus Christ before he's brought to heaven, it says this, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, what? What's the next word? Baptizing, Baptizing them. It's a command. You're, you're not baptized, you're not walking with the Lord in the sense that He wants in Matthew 28. But I, I would say this, you know, when it comes to the, when it comes to a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ, let's make sure we remember... It's because it's the inward that we need to deal with. It's the idols of the heart. It's the fact that it's transformation through the Spirit. That's what keeps it vibrant. That's what keeps it fresh. There are things I need to do. I need to get in His Word. But see, that should lead to the inward. I need to proclaim Him, like through baptism. But that leads to the Word. That leads to transformation. I need to take communion. But that leads back to inward transformation. Lord, I'm proclaiming that I'm one with you and each other. Okay? You want a vibrant walk? Yes, be obedient to the outward, but see the outward as just a a symptom of the inward. No, no, Lord, it's here. I need to stay over in this camp. It's the internal. It's the transformation that that you want. And here, again, just going back, they were driven by pride, by the externals. And I think many times we are driven by that. Look at the next part. Second part of verse 12, not only were they proud, but they feared. They were cowards. It says only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They were pushing circumcision so that they weren't being persecuted. That was a way for these Judaizers to not have to forgo suffering for Christ. You might say, well, all right, what are you talking about? Well, if you think about persecution, probably the first group of people you think of in the first century as whom? The Romans. Right? You remember all the Colosseums and all the things that Nero and the emperors did? But really, think about this. Persecution to the Christians started first, not by Rome, but by Jews. Again, Stephen was stoned by the religious leaders, Acts 7. Paul, before his conversion, Acts 9, one. this is what it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, if he found any who were of the way, whether, this is always interesting, men or women, didn't matter, he was after them all, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Where did, where did persecution start with the early Christians? It wasn't Rome. It was by Jews, their own fellow countrymen. And what was the thing about the what, what did the Jews want more than anything? Distinction between us, Jews, and those dogs. Because that's how he looked at Gentiles. Jews look at a Gentile as a dog. Now, there was one way for a Gentile to become part of proselyte, and that was to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. You can proselytize to Judaism. Other than that, you're dogs. You're worth you know, you're worth killing. So, you have this group called Judaizers. They were Jews, but they weren't just the Jews. They were, again, Judaizers were saying this You need Christ, but you also need the Old Testament law. You need circumcision. Now, catch what they were saying. See, yes, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus Christ, but you need the Old Testament law. And you know what that did? That placated the Jews. See, they would look at the Judaizers and say, No, you're not worth persecuting. No, you're, you're kind of one of us. You're just kind of a, a separation, a little bit. But at least you're bringing these old dogs into our camp. See, that's where persecution And that's what was happening here. And that's why Paul says, Listen, you know what's really driving this whole circumcision thing and this obeying the law? They're just fearful. They're cowards. And yet, sometimes we are too. We will not proclaim that Christ alone is the salvation because if we do, that person will get upset. See, deep down, they were not willing to be persecuted and maybe we are not either. You've got to ask the question, why does the cross of Christ anger the world so much? I mean, why is it that a Jew like the Apollo, or the Saul, before he got saved, want to kill? Why would he stay there with Stephen right there? What makes the world so angry with the cross? Because the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths. That's why they hate us. That's why they react. That's why they kill. That's why they persecute. Because it tells us things about ourselves that we don't want to hear. We don't want to know. We we will do anything to get away from these truths. What? One, that we are sinners. That we are sinners. Now, many will agree with that. Okay, we're sinners. Okay. But our sin brings us under the righteous, and that's a huge word, curse of God's law, and we cannot save ourselves. Now, now we're getting, okay, you're, I'm a sinner, I get that. I, that's why religion's wrong. But you're telling me that it's the righteous law of God and I can't do anything about it? I cannot do anything? Number three, Christ bore our sin and cursed precisely because no one else could. We couldn't bore, bear it ourselves. And then let's go even deeper. And nothing man can do can earn his salvation. And the word is nothing. Nothing. Now think about all those truths. They're in religion. They think they can do it on their own. And they are told not only are they sinners, but they can't do anything about it. And yet God's Son came to this earth to die for sinners. Anything they would do could not accomplish. It was an impossibility. By the way, if they could, as Galatians 2.21 says, then the cross would be unnecessary. So you get two groups here now. Again, remember, human achievement, divine accomplishment. You you also have two responses. Some will, will, will hear those words that there is salvation in Christ and tears in their eyes and a burning in their heart, and I want to receive him. But for the rest of the world, what do they do? They look and they throw their arms up and say, I want to destroy that. In fact, as one man said, every time we look at the cross, it's like Christ... S- saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, and your death I am dying. When we, we're going to sing one last song about the cross. Remember, that was Christ. So when we say cross, we're talking gospel. When we talk Christ in the gospel. I mean, uh, the uh, cross in the gospel, we're talking about Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Nothing in history or in this universe cuts us down like, to the size like the cross. It just pummels humans. And that's why they hate us. See, the cross inflicts injury to our pride. We want to be, feel like we can do something. That's why even, even if you took salvation, Christ alone, but just added one drop of self-effort... Again, that poisoned the whole gospel. That's what he referred to in, again, Galatians 1. So how do we respond? How do they respond? They hate the humiliation that the cross brings Now Some will say this. Maybe they just live in a comfortable, I guess you'd call it illusion, and say, well, but in the end, everything will work out. And they just kind of steer clear of the cross. Or again, they take the cross and they make it cross plus. Add something so that they can feel that it doesn't inflict injury. I'm earning my way. I was uh, look, looking at an old uh, Voice of Martyrs magazine. And it's about a 26-year-old widow. Her husband died back in 2008. And this is what she wrote back, back in Orissa, okay? Back when that, uh, all that uh, persecution in India. She said, The people who attacked and killed my husband are still being tried. My husband was a pastor and he was serving the Lord. That's why he was killed. I found out about his death because people witnessed it. They dragged him out of the house and killed him. I still have fear. There is still fear there. But God is with us. He is leading us day by day. Because of his blessing, we are surviving and still worshiping him. Please pray that the peace would be restored, that people would come to know Christ, and that our faith would not be shaken. I mean, and you think about, so people dragged this pastor out of their house and killed him simply because he said, Christ alone. I mean, isn't that amazing? Well, just have your own opinion. No, no. We want to kill you. Then she, the last part of the article said this, throughout India, thousands of Christians live in fear. Fear of arrest, fear of imprisonment, fear of attack, and even fear of death. But... Their fear is overshadowed by enormous faith in Jesus Christ and a commitment to spread the gospel in a country that has become increasingly hostile to Christians. By the way, fear is not the excuse me fear is not an absence of fear. In other words, to, to fear doesn't mean that you have no fear in you. it's just a disregard for fear. Okay, so if you have, it's, it's not, what am I trying to say? You're not trying to get rid of all fear in your life. You may live your life. In fact, you might say this, courage is not an absence of fear. It's just a disregard. It's just saying, listen, I have fear. Do you have fear? Do you ever do you ever witness to somebody and it's like, well, I'm really fearful. I wonder what they think. I wonder if they'll reject me. I mean, how simple is that compared to someone killing you? But the point is, is this, if you really have courage, it's it's a disregard to a fear. They said, hey, I have fear, but I'm not gonna, that's not going to control my life. With the Judaizers, it controlled their life. See, the Judaizers said, since that is the case, then we are not going to witness for Christ. We are not going to witness for Christ alone. We're going to add circumcision because as long as circumcision is added, the Jews are okay with us and we're free. I wonder how much serving, how much witnessing is aborted because of fear. I just wonder about that. How much could we have done if we hadn't feared? Maybe in a witnessing situation, maybe in a serving situation. How much ministry never gets started because of cowardice? Has fear hampered or even stopped you from serving him today? You know, fear is a big thing. I look back over my life periodically and there are points, many points of obedience, but there are points where I could actually say, if I really got right down to it, what stopped me there was fear. I wanted to please somebody versus pleasing the Lord. So you have pride, you have fear, cowardice, and then the last motivation of the heart is found in verse 13 it says for not even those who are circumcised keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh that's hypocrisy paul says listen the first thing that motivated them was pride the second thing is fear of the cross and what it would do to their life but the third is hypocrisy they're telling you to get circumcised they don't even they got circumcised but they can't even keep the law themselves that's a hypocrite they boast in your flesh, but the reality is they're just boasting in the outward act of circumcision. Can you imagine getting their prayer letter, the Judaizers' prayer letter? Uh, <laughs> it would be you know you know how you get prayer letters from missionaries? This is what theirs would say ninety eight foreskins cut this month. <laughs> That's what they were as trophy hunters. They were success seekers. You know, we get this still today. You know, missionary prayer letters. There's so many conversions. There's so many decisions. There's so many baptisms. I'm not saying that it's never good to have information. But the reality is sometimes it's driven by a fear of man. And this boasting for them wasn't even out of sincerity. In fact, that word good showing in the flesh in verse 12, let's just go back a second, has overtones of insincerity. Like they're boasting in your flesh, but they couldn't boast in their own. Okay? So they lacked integrity. Yes, they were outwardly looking good, but not inwardly, full of dead men's bones. And I would just say this, as we serve the Lord, let's make sure our lives line up obediently with what the Bible says. Because here are leaders, here are missionaries whose lives do not line up with what the Scripture says. So that's all the bad. Okay, the bad motivation. And hopefully you've seen even maybe some of your... Because I think, I think we can see ourselves in how we... When we serve the Lord, sometimes it's through pride. Sometimes we don't serve the Lord because of fear. Sometimes we're serving the Lord, but there's hypocrisy in our own life. And we have to make sure we, we actually honor the Lord... And boast in Him. In fact, that's the next part. Let's look at the correct motivation. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast, because again, they were boasting in the flesh, that I should boast, except, key word, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the correct motivation. That's where we're going to get blessed. Just as you look at it, and we're going to pick this up next week, but notice that he uses the full name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In. That literally would mean God who saves, the Messiah. It's it's everything is on Him. If you're going to boast, boast in God, the Messiah. But not only that, but notice the pronouns. That I should boast in the cross of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's personal. It's not only what the Lord did, but there's a personal relationship that I have with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I can boast because of what He's done for me. And it reminds me of John 1.12 where it says, As many as received Him, to them He, that's God, gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Right? If you are justified, if you can truly boast in the cross, that's because you have received what Christ did on the cross for you. Again, John 1.12, if you received Him, then He gives you the right to become children of God. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ alone, through faith on what He's done on the cross? And then Paul says, but you need to glory in this. Now we look at what the cross meant to the unsaved. They hate the cross. They hate the cross. But Let's see what it does for the believer. As one man said, the cross is not just something to boast about. It is the only thing to boast about. I like that. It's not just something to boast about. It's the only thing to boast about. The word boast means to glory and rejoice in. Again, the cross. The cross is saved by grace. Through faith because of what Christ did. But you say, why? Why, why is that the only thing to boast in? Well, this is what the cross represents. The cross represents that God loves us enough to die for us. That's what it represents. When you see the cross, God loved me. And that he saved us through the death of his own dear son. It means that we have been redeemed. That Christ has paid the whole price for our salvation. The cross means that we have been have forgiveness for our sins. That Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. It means that we are justified that God now accepts us as righteous in His sight. His wrath has been turned away and we stand innocent before Him. Not only that, He's brought us into His family and made us His children. Do you see why you could say, oh, I get it. That's the only thing worth boasting about. Because in the cross, everything that God has done on this earth for mankind is found right there. Right? Right? So, I mean, you start, you, you start going back over those key words I just did. Saved, redeemed, forgiven, atoning sacrifice, justified, made righteous, turned away our sin, made innocent, family, children, all on the cross. So Paul says, you know what? If I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. We can't boast in ourselves and the cross simultaneously. In fact, I would say right now, you are boasting in something. You know, you start boasting in the cross, you start savoring the gospel, you start meditating on all the Lord's done, it will be amazing how your life will be transformed. It will be amazing how my life is transformed if we savor what Christ did on the cross. So let us not boast. See, we boast in a lot of different things. And those things bring us Problems. And he just says, listen, boast in Christ. I came across a pretty interesting illustration. This happened about 13 years ago. On June 22, 1997, a parachute instructor named Michael Costello, 42 of Mount Dora, Florida, jumped out of an airplane 12,000 feet high. Along with him jumped a novice, his name was Gareth Griffith. Two guys jump out of an airplane 12,000 feet high. The novice would soon discover just how good his instructor was. When the novice pulled the ripcord, the parachute failed. Plummeting toward the ground, he faced certain death. The instructor did an amazing thing just before hitting the ground. Now, you have to understand, I'm going to read something in the story. I think he realized that about halfway down, unless you pull the ripcord at a certain point, you cannot pull ripcord just a few hundred feet off the ground and expect to survive. And so his, both cords had yet been pulled. You saw the man in trouble, and this is what the instructor did. The instructor did an amazing thing. Just before hitting the ground, the instructor rolled over. So he came in like this. One guy's going like this. He came in, and before hitting the ground, he rolled over on the ground first, and the novice would land on top of him. The instructor was killed instantly. The novice fractured his spine in the fall, but was not paralyzed. He survived. One man takes the place of another, takes the brunt for another. One substitutes himself to die so many will live. So it was with the cross when Christ died for our sins so that we might live forever. See, we were plummeting towards God's wrath, towards God's justice, towards hell. And Christ came and intercepted us. And he became our substitute on the cross. Now, do you think that young man would forever remember the instructor that saved his life? How much more in a spiritual realm of all that Jesus Christ did for us should we always want to worship and honor him, what he did on the cross? See, that's why we glory in the cross, because it was at the cross that Jesus Christ took our punishment. Sometimes we forget. We let the world's, the the, the angst of the world, the frustrations of the world, the unknowns of the world kind of jilt us. And we start worrying, and when we worry, we're not boasting in the cross. We aren't. You can't worry and boast in the cross at the same moment. We have to come back to Christ. All that He has done for us, that will transform your life. Yes, Lord, there are issues, but this world is falling apart. Yes, they hate you, but I already told you. are not the world going to hate you? Yeah. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're secure in Him. So you get an opportunity right now to boast in the cross. If you could bow your head. I want to take this out of the ministry realm as we've been looking at it, just in the personal realm. Um, Again, we looked at three sinful motivations, pride, fear, hypocrisy. And you may see that not just in the ministry realm, you may see it just in a personal realm. But again, look at the cross, because the cross is the antidote. See, it's not just the direction we need to move, it's the antidote for pride, fear, and hypocrisy definitely destroys our pride because only Christ. It definitely destroys our fear because through Christ we can do all things. It definitely destroys our hypocrisy. It creates integrity in our life. Okay, See the cross as not just the goal but actually the antidote to those sins. Keep running back. And I'm going to just give you a moment to ask God, are those things in your life or are you moving towards the cross and if you... Have gotten stuck in those sins? Ask God right now, Lord, I want to stay focused on the cross of Christ. Father, we pray that you would create in our heart what used to be proud, humility. What used to be fearful, courage perhaps even hypocritical integrity. And Lord, we're not going to be turning to gimmicks of the world. We're simply going to turn to the cross of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to savor these truths throughout this day, throughout this week, for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.